This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. You can't derive an ought from it is. Noam Chomsky being taken out of the university auditorium in a stretcher, having just been destroyed by Ben Shapiro. I think we've all had uh, knockdown, drag-out arguments with uh, political opponents, uh, people who don't agree with us. Sometimes we win, sometimes we don't win so much. And in front of me, I have a book called Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left by Ben Burgess, who is joining me via Skype from uh, New Jersey. Hello, Ben. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Is, is your case that the, the right uses logic, or at least the idea of logic, as its property and that the left allows itself to be uh, bamboozled. It, really? Is that, what, is that where you're coming from? Uh, in a way, yes. I think that a lot of, uh, of people on the right, uh, certainly here in the United States, uh, like to talk a lot about logic and to, uh, and to sort of use it uh, rhetorically as, as a, um, a way to differentiate themselves from the left, that you know, the sort of implication is that they're, uh, hard-headed and coming to conclusions based on facts and logic, whereas uh, people who disagree with them uh, are just relying on their feelings, right? So Ben Shapiro, for example, uh, is famous for using the catchphrase, facts don't care about your feelings, where the implication is that um, is that he's basing his conclusions politically on facts, whereas people who disagree with him uh, are just, you know, disagreeing because, you know, because of their emotional reactions, and I think, and uh, and I think that there's, without exaggerating it, uh, because of course there are plenty of people who are on my side, who are on the left, who make good and you know rigorous arguments uh, for their positions. I do see a bit of an overreaction in some quarters to the Ben Shapiro types. Where well, uh, let, let's talk about him then, because yeah. he he's a bit of a bet noir. Um, for you, it, it, he, you single him out not because he's the only or the the most prominent, but he's a perfect example of this of this uh, phenomenon for you. And you you deal with him quite a lot in the book. So um, we actually are beginning to hear about him in Britain too. But can you just sketch who is Ben Shapiro? Uh, yeah, I, I saw a um, I saw the BBC interview that was interesting. Um, he is, uh, he sort of started as a, um, you know, conservative, you know, wunderkind. He was maybe 19 when he started doing his column. Uh, and he, he's a, um, you know, he's a conservative commentator, uh, who's, uh, he's an Orthodox Jew. Uh, he's one of the key, the main figures in what's sometimes referred to as, uh, the intellectual dark web, uh, which is a uh, a group of uh, of right wing thinkers and commentators that include people like Jordan Peterson, um, you know Brett Weinstein, uh, and uh, and I, the the reason to to kind of talk about Ben Shapiro um, as much as I do is that he's he's kind of the the poster boy for the rhetorical strategy that I started out talking about. Well, of course, he wrote a book called How to Debate Leftists, Leftists and Destroy Them, 11 Rules for Winning the Argument, uh, and which is, a, a, and, and he's a, in a way, it's a mirror image then of, of, of your approach, isn't it? He, he, he likes to be seen as the destroyer of weak arguments. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's quite a title, right? You know, that's sort of <laughs> yeah, really um, imagine, you know, like Noam Chomsky being taken out of a university auditorium at a stretcher, having just been destroyed by Ben Shapiro. Uh, uh, one one difference uh, between the the two approaches uh, is that you know, so Shapiro, uh, what he does is typically, of course, he doesn't go around arguing with people like Noam Chomsky. What he does is he goes and he'll give it. A talk at a college campus, and in Q and A, there'll be some uh, somewhat confused left-wing nineteen-year-old who will ask him a question, you know, challenge him in uh, in the Q and A, and then um, and then he will talking loud and fast and confidently as he does, he'll bulldoze over them, and then it'll become a YouTube clip called you know Ben Shapiro destroys another liberal on college campus. And, well, now uh, that that raises but does not beg the question well you instructed me in the book <laughs> that raises the question though um with uh ben shapiro whether whether we're talking about uh, deploying uh, logic or whether we're deploying uh, the 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 sophistry the 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 tricks of argument and you 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 suggest that the ben shapiro is much much more adept really at um at bulldozing than reasoning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's related to the point about destroying because, uh, well, people are so used to that language. I'm, I'm fairly sure I've been in videos that people have labeled, you know, like that. But, um, but I, I think it's a really bad metaphor for how to think about what arguments are for well, that. Uh, the purpose of, of reasoning is to try to, to try to get things right. Uh, and if you're, you know, the purpose of reasoning is it to is it to make, you know, your opponent look bad, right? Which uh which is which is what people are talking about more or less when they talk uh they talk about destroying. And Ben Shapiro is a really instructive example because he will more or less constantly set up these false dilemmas that, you know, either you support everything the Israeli government does or you support Hamas, you know. Uh and the reason that he gets away with that is because he does these things that are rhetorically effective. And there's, look, there's nothing wrong with making, with trying to be rhetorically effective. Rhetoric is, you know, logic and rhetoric are both valuable things, but, um, but oftentimes it could, it could disguise deficiencies in the argument that, you know, if he slowed down a little bit, if he gave the 19 year old snowflake a chance to respond and, you know, to sort of collect her thoughts before he responded to her, then people might start to notice, oh, no, that's there really are more options than that, aren't there, right? You know, like, you are, you know, like, you sound very confident, you're talking quickly, you're talking loudly, but are those really the only two options? But all that said, uh, you, you write in your book, don't mistake this book, yours, as a, yes. as a plea for civility. Um, you, you're not, for instance, saying that uh, if, if the left argued their case with flawless logic, the, the right would accept it. Um, th there is there is a point of, of having the argument. Um, and, and again, you say the purpose of winning arguments is not just to feel better about ourselves. Um, so uh, actually, I, I, I made notes in the margin as I was going along and I kept, I kept using the word or, um, whether this was um, about debate or polemic. Um, mm -hmm. whether the book is philosophical or political and, and whether, and, and this was where I ended up, is it a manifesto or a manual, your book? Uh, 
I think the answer to all three of those questions is both, uh, <laughs> because the the book the book certainly makes an argument uh, that uh, people on the left should be more concerned with um, with learning, you know, learning about logical fallacies, for example, you know, ways that uh, that arguments can go wrong, and not just sort of treating them as if there were these kinds of you know, prissy and arbitrary conventions for how to, you know, have a civilized debate. But like, these are ways that we can reason badly and we can reason better if we can avoid them. And these are things that we should take more of an interest in that we should be, we should be trying harder to learn the art of our argument. And so I give, I give an argument about why we should care about these things, but it is also intended as, uh, as a manual that as, as like the part of the intention of the book is that people having finished reading it will actually, have some tools for making better arguments uh, in a variety of contexts, including both, um, you know, debates and, you know, uh, polemics. Uh, and, and so I, I believe I, I may have missed one of your questions, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I believe that the answer to all of them is both. Well, um, I, I want to know though, I want to, I want to pin you down. Would you rather have, effective reasoning or would you rather win the argument in the end because I, I, I mean I, i'm going to sort of i'm going to out you at this point you, sure, firstly, you, you're you're a professor of uh, philosophy um mm -hmm. and you're a marxist as well and you have very strong views about the the urgency of overthrowing capitalism um so it, it it's it's not a, a dry academic question and it's not even a question of just feeling better about ourselves because we we did better in the argument F for you it, it, there is an agenda as well isn't there yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think so. Um, so yeah, no, this, this is, this is very true. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, um, you know, I'm not a neutral participant, you know, uh, observer, you know, when I, when I teach a philosophy class, of course, uh, in that role, a lot of what I do is to try to, you know, get people to, to see the other sides of, uh, of questions, you know, even when I agree with them and, and I'm, I sort of, um, you know, I like it when students later express surprise about finding out what my actual views are. Uh, but of course, that's not the context here at all, right? Like, I'm, I'm very concerned uh, with uh, one of the reasons to to write something like this, one of the reasons to try to give people this sort of manual, and one of the reasons to, to sort of urge people to take those tools more seriously is that uh, is that I do have political goals that you know that I care very much about both you know short-term social democratic goals and more loud, more radical ones and um, and I care about achieving them and I think that and whereas I'm under no illusion as you said that just making perfect arguments would be enough to to achieve them right you know there there is no you know moral argument that you can give Jeff Bezos that will convince him to uh, <laughs> uh, you know, to give up his, his billions or even improve conditions uh, at the Amazon warehouse. You've got warehouse. to divorce him for that. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. So that's the, uh, that's the best way to get him to give up some of them. But, uh, um, yet another union that, uh, that Jeff Bezos has, uh, has busted, but, um, <laughs> very good. Uh, but yeah, I think that, um, I think that it's, even though, just making really good arguments certainly isn't enough, right? It, it doesn't substitute for, you know, organizing that union at the Amazon now warehouse. It doesn't substitute for any rate for, you know, winning, you know, elections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is a tool that can persuade people. 
Uh, and so, of course, uh, if I thought that you could, um, you know, that you could like trick people by making very bad arguments and that you could, uh, you know, you could get people to, uh, to be socialist that way. And if you could do that for enough people that, you know, that would actually be effective, that would be something of a moral dilemma because, you know, as you say, there are, you know, there are urgent things at stake. Uh, but I, I tend to, um, I tend to think that if we think we're in that moral dilemma, that's because we're uh, we're overestimating our devious powers of persuasion. I think that uh, I think that especially in the kind of media landscape that people are in, where they're saturated with information, uh, they have access to lots of other people making lots of other arguments uh, besides us. Uh, the idea that um, that if we're like clever and devious enough, we can like you know, make misleading arguments and win. So this dilemma will come up in the first place is probably, um, a little self aggrandizing. I think our, I think our, our best bet is actually to make good arguments. Okay. Well, in that case, can we, uh, as it were, get under the bonnet a little bit, let's go back to Ben Shapiro and his slogan mm -hmm. facts. Don't care about your feelings. How are we going to answer that? What's our approach going to be? Yeah. Uh, so I think that Ben Shapiro, um, or more accurately, anybody who's taken in by that uh, would do well to read their David Hume, uh, from which they'd, uh, they'd learn that any kind of argument for a normative conclusion, a conclusion about what should happen, what's good, what will be good, uh, what's desirable, uh, can't come from purely factual premises. That's called Hume's Law, that you can't derive an ought from it is. So anytime you're coming to a certain moral or political conclusion, uh, there's, you know, there's always going to be some sort of non-factual value premise that's doing crucial work in that argument. And of course, outcomes are facts as well, aren't they? they, they that's the, you know, when, when they talk about facts, don't care about your feelings. They only want to take one set of the facts into account. Yeah, I mean, you can always, um, you know, emphasize in different facts uh, can can lead can uh, can suggest different conclusions, but the the methodological point that is really important to stress here is that no matter which facts, uh, you know which facts you're emphasizing, you know whether whether you're talking about um, you know the fact that uh, that a, a day old zygote uh, is biologically human uh, and alive, which isn't really controversial or interested, uh, or whether the fact that you're emphasizing is that um, Oh, you know, some study estimates that such and such many women would uh, would die in botched abortions if there were no legal abortions. Those, you know, which one of those things you're emphasizing might certainly suggest a different conclusion. But if you're if you're actually interested in in reasoning about this, okay, get in light of all of this, what position should we take? Then you have to have some moral principles about uh, whether we. Um, about whether fetuses are the right kinds of entities to have a have a right to life at all. If they do, if they are the kinds of entities that have a right to life, uh, are you know how does that right line up against a uh, pregnant woman's right to bodily autonomy? And uh, and you know people, you know it's it's not that there's uh, that you couldn't have a, an interesting discussion about this between two people who you know came to different conclusions in good faith, but just um, but just sort of say that, oh, my position follows from science, 
is the, the right does this with economics as well don't they 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 uh, like to position themselves as not having a stake in it it's just the way things are and when the left critiques it then uh, the left is somehow going against natural law yeah uh right that you know you 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 just must not understand economics um which of course is often um i mean part of the problem here has to do with the epistemic defects of economics uh as a discipline because uh because quite you know quite a bit of it uh is fairly uh you know like on the face of it right if you if you'd never taken an economics class uh but you know you knew a fair amount about everything else and you were just going to guess what would go on in in economics as an academic discipline you'd think oh well, so this is the branch of social science where we empirically study how economies work. Uh, that that sounds that sounds right. Uh, but in practice, quite a bit of economics is not like that. Quite a bit of economics uh, is extremely idealized and um, and a priori. You know that it's we sort of imagine how perfectly rational agents would interact in certain kinds of simplified uh, market uh, market environments uh, and. You know, some models that you can construct that way do have some predictive power, uh, but it's not a coincidence uh, that people, um, that conservatives and libertarians tend to gravitate towards ones that uh, that produce conclusions that are amenable to them ideologically. And it's also very telling that even that like, okay, so like one of my favorite examples of this is about minimum wage research, uh, that a common argument along the lines of what you're saying is that uh, it, it, we can't raise the minimum wage uh, to something that people can live on because if we did so, that would um, that would raise unemployment. And this is generally glossed by saying that um, it would help the, you know, it would hurt the very people it's intended to help. That even if you accepted the premise, uh, there is a value judgment that's smuggled in here that's that's often not obvious. Because even if it were true that uh, minimum wage increases would lead to some increase in unemployment, it wouldn't follow at all that uh, that therefore uh, this was a net negative. Because uh, Hume's law, <laughs> you can't get from is to ought. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in fact, you know, you have to, you know, like the the premise that you need there is the is that uh, the only factor that you know that we should care about is employment. And at that point, you start to get suspicious because employment tends to track, you know, economic growth and profits and things like that. Uh, and so you say, oh, are we really concerned with the effects on the working poor? Or are we interested in something else here? Because if you're really concerned primarily with effects on the working poor, then you'd have to look at a, a bunch of effects besides employment. Like you'd have to say, okay, uh, if some people, for the sake of argument, lose their jobs, uh, we have to balance that against the effects on all the people who don't lose their jobs. And in fact, there is quite a bit of uh, empirical evidence that uh, minimum wage increases actually increase life expectancy uh, for a variety of reasons uh, that, you know, uh, in countries, for example, that don't have uh, socialized health care, uh, you know, people are slightly more likely to be able to see the doctor uh, reducing uh, economic stress makes people less likely to smoke, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you have plus, of course, people who advocate higher minimum wages tend to also advocate various um, social programs to make it not as bad to be unemployed temporarily. 
So, uh, so it, it's a rev- you know, it's a it might sound nitpicky, but it's um, it's a very uh, revealingly incomplete argument. You know, when you sort of sort of jump straight from uh, the premise, which turns out to be false anyway, but the premise that minimum wage increases would increase unemployment to the conclusion that um, that therefore therefore they're bad, <laughs> as if there was absolutely nothing that we should care about in this this picture besides exactly what the employment rate is. Can I uh, bring you back, uh, back to your book for one final question? Um, Can you tell me, what do you think are the most egregious sins committed by both sides? Um, One or two, perhaps each for the right and left in, in, in this, in this field of, of uh, arguing and and sophistry. Yes. Uh, So I think that one of the most egregious sins that's committed argumentatively on the left uh, is about uh, standpoint epistemology, which is the uh, the sin committed when we treat um, the demographic facts about the person who's making an argument as if they were relevant to an extent they're really not. Uh, that, you know, we should, you know, you should just listen to maybe if you have a privileged position uh, instead of, um, criticizing things or disagreeing with things said by those less privileged, uh, then you should just sort of defer to them, uh, which I think is a very bad idea, both um, both because a lot of persuadable people will realize that it, you know, this just doesn't really make their very much sense. And also because this is something that can all too easily be weaponized and picked up by the other side. Uh, so for example, somebody could say, Hey, you know, um, you know, you're you know you a Gentile are defending Jeremy Corbyn against accusations of anti-Semitism. Uh, why don't you just you know be quiet and defer to the lived experiences of uh, people who are making these accusations? As far as the right goes, uh, one uh, that I didn't mention, uh, but is uh, is an interesting example, uh, is the continuum fallacy, uh, which is the mistake that we make. Uh, logically, when we infer from the fact that there's a spectrum and there are gray areas, and it's very hard to tell uh, exactly where the line is crossed between one category and another category, to the conclusion that there just isn't a real distinction. So uh, it's, I think, fairly straightforward how this applies in uh, the abortion debate about when a fetus becomes a person. And, uh, and I think that you generally tend to know that you're in the presence of this fallacy when you hear people say, oh, but, you know, but if you don't agree with me about this, where do you draw the line? Ah, yes, the draw the line thing when it's fuzzy. Well, Ben, thank you very much. The book is Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Uh, it's published by Zero Books. It was written by Ben Burgess, of course, and it's uh, available uh, 10.99 in Britain, uh, 16.95 in America. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Ben. Right, thank you. That was the Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com, and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>